You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Mo money, mo problems. Yeah, yep. One of our great and recent American poets, the notorious B.I.G., composed that phrase at the end of the 20th century, and it has become indicative of our culture ever since. In those four short words, he managed to capture a remarkable truth that's right at the heart of so many of our lives. It's the truth that obtaining more worldly security, more wealth, more material stuff, doesn't actually give us more peace or carefreeness. In fact, oftentimes, the more we get, the more worried and anxious our lives become. And that's maybe no more evident anywhere else in the world than in the good old U.S. of A. Right now, we are the wealthiest society in the history of the world. At this moment, the U.S. makes up about 4% of the world's population, but controls 34% of the world's wealth. At this moment, if you make $60,000 or more a year, you are the wealthiest 1% of all people on earth. And yet, even with no money, we are people who are constantly racked with worry. And for being honest, we all struggle with this. We are addicted to worry. We worry about the latest news story. Chinese drones or Russian weather balloons or market trends or election results. Our news feed is just a constant ticker of worry. We worry about our work and our careers. We wake up just flooded with all the things we have to do in the day, and we wonder if it'll be really worthwhile for us, if it really will give us life, if it's really what we're meant to do. We worry about our kids and the world we're sending them into, the things that they're thinking or experiencing, watching or hearing. We worry about the economy all the time. We get obsessed with watching market trends or interest rates or complaining about gas prices. We worry about that weird lump on our back so we go to WebMD and search, and four minutes and 21 seconds later, we decide we have cancer and we're going to die next week, right? Don't tell me you haven't done that. We've all, we've all gone to WebMD. And in the middle of all that worry, what do we as Americans tell ourselves will resolve it? Get more stuff. We've built an entire society around the notion that our worries can be resolved by consuming or attaining a little bit more to give us a little more security in the world. We practice a religion of acquisition. That's what our culture does, a religion of acquisition. Just get to this point in your career, and then your worry will be cured. Make this much money or save this much money, and your worry will be cured. Buy a home, a better home, a bigger home, and then your worry will be cured. Get this new product, and then your worry will be cured. Take this drug, and then your worry will be cured. You guys, acquisition is a bad religion. It's actually a demon that sucks life from us. It doesn't cure worry, it only amplifies it. Because in our religion of acquisition, we either are worried about obtaining more in order to get a sense of security, or we're worried about losing what we have. And so we hoard it, we're stingy. We suffer in our culture of acquisition, and it's this vicious cycle. Our worry is ironically only increased the more we seek to relieve it. The more things we have, the more we fear their laws, and the more things we chase after in order to provide ourselves security, in order to free ourselves from worry. Think about it. Isn't it remarkable 
that the wealthiest nation that's ever existed is also the most worried and anxious nation on record. Mo money, mo problems. He had it right. So what can we do, right? Are we just forced to live with this sort of worry in our lives? Are we doomed to be people who are just consumed by worry at all times? Well, no. There's actually someone who has something to say about that. Spoiler alert, it's Jesus. You're in church. I hope that's not surprising to you. Jesus had something to say to us about worry, and he believed that there was a way to free ourselves from it. We're continuing in a sermon series here at Midtown entitled, You've Heard It Said, But Jesus Says to You. And this whole series has been about evaluating the notions or the phrases or the ideas that our culture kind of expresses or articulates, and then what Jesus says to us about what's true, about us, about the world, about God. And today, we're exploring this notion. You've heard it said... Be worried and fearful. But Jesus says to you, seek first the kingdom. You've heard it said, be worried and fearful. But Jesus says to you, seek first the kingdom. Friends, if you have a Bible, open it with me. We're going to be reading from Matthew. This is the first book in your New Testament, if you're flipping there. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 25. That's where we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. The words are going to be behind me on the screen, so you can follow along there as well. Matthew 6 starting in verse 25. This is Jesus speaking. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body, more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? You have little faith. Therefore, don't worry, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For it's the Gentiles who strive for all these things. And indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, there you have it, you guys. You worry? Just stop it. That's what Jesus says. We're done. Sermon over. We can pray. You guys got it? Easy to implement that, right? Not so much, right? Just saying not to do something that we compulsively do all the time is not going to stop the thing. There's an author named Frederick Beatner who once wrote that telling a human not to worry is like telling a woman with a bad head cold to stop sneezing or telling a drunkard to lay off the booze, or telling a compulsive gambler not to go to Vegas. It's not easy. And that sort of casual statement from Jesus can, especially in the way we use it in our culture, it can seem a little bit like shallow sentimentalism. That's often how we use a phrase like this. Oh, you're going through something hard? Don't worry. Be happy. We'll pay $4.99 for that card at Target. For sure. Right? We do that all the time. It's right along with everything happens for a reason, Every cloud has a silver lining. Don't worry. Be happy. 
And for many of us who are going through real hard stuff, the stuff that really causes us to worry, that sort of shallow sentimentalism can sting more than it can heal. Yeah? I mean, how can Jesus tell me not to worry when there's a global freaking pandemic going on? How can he tell me not to worry when a tornado just ravaged my town? How can he tell me not to worry when my child or family member is deathly ill? It can be easy for us to start to conclude that Jesus is just being a little naive here. That he doesn't really understand the things that I'm worrying about. That I have legit worry. And he doesn't really get it here. But is that true about Jesus? Remember the life that Jesus lived. He was born in a no-name town to a woman out of wedlock. You think he had to worry about what people would think about him growing up? The sort of stuff that they'd say behind his back about him? He worked a manual labor job for most of his life, so he definitely wasn't rolling in riches. He had an idea of what it might look like to live paycheck to paycheck. And when he actually started his ministry, crowds would regularly press in on him and threaten his security. There were religious leaders at the time who were actively plotting to murder him. It's pretty worrisome, I'd say. And then the culmination of his ministry was a grievous pain and loss and death on the cross. The prophets in the scriptures remind us that Jesus was a man of sorrow, well acquainted with grief. Jesus isn't naive to the things that cause us to worry, friends. If anything, he had more than any of us in this room have to worry about. And not only that, he's speaking these words to a crowd of Jewish followers who are being actively oppressed by the Roman Empire at the time. He is one of them. He knows them. And yet, in the middle of all those things that we think, well, that justifies my worry. In the middle of all that, Jesus seems to think that it's possible to live without it. He seems to think that it's possible to live a life of peace and carefreeness, even in that sort of pain-ravaged world. And so our question shouldn't be, oh, Jesus, his naive statement here. We shouldn't try to discredit Jesus' words and think, oh, this is just nice, shallow sentimentalism. We should wonder, how do I get that sort of peace? How do I get the sort of peace that Jesus is talking about? He seemed to live with it. He was that kind of person. How can I get the sort of peace that can cure my worry? And that's what Jesus is exploring for us today. In the middle of a broken world, how we can have peace in the midst of all of these worrisome things. And he's telling us how that works through three main points in this passage. He's telling us first what worry is and isn't. Second, where worry comes from. And third, how we respond to worry. What worry is and isn't, where worry comes from and how we respond. First, what worry is and isn't. In the way that Jesus is using worry here, he's referring to obsessive and agonizing dwelling on something, not honest and wise forethought or consideration. Obsessive and agonizing dwelling on something, not honest and wise forethought or consideration. See, it can be easy to read verse 25 and think that Jesus is telling us, well, just don't worry about your basic needs. Well, just, just forget about them. Just ignore them. Just overcome your hunger or your thirst. And when we hear those words, it can seem kind of unfair to those who are hungry and thirsty. Right? I can't just ignore my basic needs. I can't survive without those things. But notice, Jesus doesn't say, don't be concerned about your neighbor's food. Don't be concerned about your neighbor's thirst or your neighbor's clothing. He doesn't say that. Nor does he actually tell us that we need to ignore our physical needs. Remember, all over his ministry, he cared deeply for the physical needs of the people around him. That was a big part of his ministry. When people were hungry, he fed them. When they were thirsty, they, he gave them water. 
When they're sick or in need, he helped them. Jesus is not saying disregard your physical needs. One major point in this passage is that God actually cares about those needs really, really deeply because he cares about his good and beautiful creation. That's why Jesus gives us the example of the birds and the flowers. It's an example that God cares about even the smallest parts of our lives. So Jesus, in this passage, isn't saying to stop caring about the empty bellies in the world. And he's not saying to stop caring about your physical needs or that they don't matter. And he's definitely not saying just focus on the spiritual parts of reality. He's not telling us to disregard thinking and planning wisely about how to steward our gifts to care for others. The sort of worry he's talking about is different. The word he uses here is this excessive and obsessive anxious dwelling that paralyzes us, that causes us great distress. And all of us know what he means deep down. We know what it's like to wake up in the morning and be driven by our anxiety and our worry. And what that does to our heart and our mind, what that does to the way that we see others. And we know what it's like not to live out of that oftentimes. We know what it's like to live in peace at times. We get little pockets of it. We know what he's talking about, this anxious worry that paralyzes us in the present. There's a theologian named Warren Wearsby who puts it this way. He says, most people are being crucified on a cross between two thieves, yesterday's regret and tomorrow's worries. Yesterday's regret and tomorrow's worries. We're always having the present robbed from us by our worry. We do this all the time. Think about how often we worry about the past. We brood on some decision or action or event until we worry ourselves into paralysis. So we're dwelling on a past relationship and how it didn't go very well, and so we become paralyzed in all our present relationships, fearful, anxious. Or we dwell on some past economic crisis, right? The crisis of 08, where we lost our home, maybe, or many people lost their homes, and so we become, become really, really anxious and worried about what might happen in our economy today. We dwell on the way that our bodies used to look, and then we become paralyzed, we become anxious about aging. We're filled with shame when we look into the mirror or when we go to the gym. We worry about the past all the time, but we also worry about the future. How often our imagination just starts to run wild with potential things that might come things that might go wrong. Friends, our imaginations are sometimes the biggest hurdles to a life of peace. Our minds. How often do we decide that tomorrow's going to be a bad day before it gets there? How often have we made conclusions about this relationship or about this conversation or about this situation and we actually end up making it way worse than it actually is? Our imaginations oftentimes aren't really accurate representations of what reality looks like. Many times, our imaginations think of the worst things that don't actually happen. There's a a story I read recently this week from a biblical scholar. He writes about a doctor in London. And near the end of this doctor's life, he was paralyzed and bedridden and yet at peace, really carefree at the end of his life. His family and friends were shocked about his approach. They didn't really know what to do with it. And one day, one of his sons, who was a teenager, he was about to leave home. He wanted to learn some wisdom from his father, this doctor. And his father said this to his son. The thing to do is to steward your own part of the world and to do it like a gentleman. And please remember that the biggest troubles you've got to face are those that never come. The biggest troubles that you've got to face are those that never come. The biggest troubles that you've got to face are all of the imaginative worries of your life. That's what Jesus is exposing here. Our tendency to obsess and become paralyzed by the past or by a potential future. But 
as Jesus often does. He doesn't just stop with identifying what's wrong. Right? Jesus didn't come to just tell us about symptoms. He came to cure us of the deeper disease. And so he goes underneath worry here. He wants to look at its source. He wants to explore where worry comes from. We learn in this passage that worry comes from trusting the wrong priorities, not from missing worldly security. Worry comes from trusting the wrong priorities, not from missing worldly security. So there's another sentimental read of this passage. You could say, yeah, don't worry, because God is going to give you worldly security. Always, right? Things are going to go really well for you. You'll get what you need in life. God will take care of all of your worldly security all the time. You live a nice, easy, smooth life, just like the birds and the flowers. Look how easy their life is, right? Look how smooth their life is. But dig deeper into that notion. Birds in the ancient Jewish world weren't exactly experiencing lives of great worldly security. Birds were one of the top sacrificed animals in the ancient world. Death was around the corner at all times for birds. And Jesus, even in this passage, talks about the insecurity of the flowers and the grass. Did you catch that? He says, yes, they're beautiful today, but what happens tomorrow? They're gone. They're burned in the oven. They're kindling. This is a crucial point Jesus is getting at, you guys. Jesus isn't commending to us the worldly security of birds and flowers at all times. He's commending to us the trust they live with in the midst of insecurity. You with me? He's not commending the worldly security of birds and flowers. He's commending to us the trust they live with in the midst of insecurity. Because the gospel isn't a worldly prosperity message. Jesus didn't mean that nothing bad will ever happen to us. Look what happened to him. Look what happened to his disciples. Join us on Good Friday. You'll see. Instead, what Jesus means is that we can have a peace in the midst of all of our situations, the good and the bad, the secure and the insecure, through a deep and abiding trust in the providence of God in the big picture. The source of worry is never our circumstance. That's why millionaires can be more worried than people who live on $5 a day. Some of the people I know who live the most peace-filled lives are also people who have endured the most difficult things or are enduring them actively. The source of our worry isn't our circumstance. The source of our worry is our heart. It's always connected to what we treasure most, what we prioritize most. Peace and freedom from worry come from pursuing and trusting in the right priority, not by obtaining the right outer circumstance. And that's actually what Jesus has been talking about just before this passage here. You notice the first word in the passage we read today is therefore. That's a transition word. What that is doing is linking this teaching back to something that came before. The words that he gives about worry are directly connected to what he said before. Anytime you see a therefore in the Bible, a good question to ask is, what is the therefore therefore? It's nice. I didn't come up with that. That's not original. And it's also not that great. But it, it helps. <laughs> it helps us when we read. What's the therefore therefore? Well, in the passage just before this, Jesus has spent extended time talking about the importance of what we prioritize in life. And he does that through three main metaphors. The first metaphor is talking about treasure. He says you can treasure the things of the world or the things of heaven. That is, you can treasure things like wealth or power or age or beauty or health. Or you can treasure things like loving God and loving others. You can treasure things like generosity and serving the vulnerable. And what he tells you is that things of the world, if you prioritize those things, if you treasure those things, will ultimately go away. They'll, they'll pass away. They'll be destroyed by moth or rust. But the things of heaven, they can give you true, lasting peace. 
whatever you prioritize, whatever you treasure, will lead you towards a certain way of being, towards an anxiety or towards peace. And then he continues. The next metaphor he uses is the metaphor of our eyes. He says that your eye can become focused on healthy or unhealthy things, light or dark things. And he's using the eye as a really clever metaphor, right? The eye is the thing that allows us to navigate through the world, right? If you close your eyes, it's going to be much harder to navigate. And he's saying that what your eye is focused on is going to drive you either towards death or towards life. Whatever your eye is directed towards is going to lead you towards destruction or towards peace. Whatever your priority is will lead you one way or the other. And then he talks about two masters. He says that we are unable to serve two different masters, unable to have two top priorities, because eventually one will give way to the other. He says we can't both serve God and be people who prioritize material possessions or wealth in our lives. Eventually, one of those priorities will win out. Eventually, it will be clear what we're really following. So Jesus' whole point in talking about worry here is to remind us that the thing that we prioritize... That's amazing, by the way. It's, it's, a whole, it's still going. It's still happening. Man, they're having a great time. That guy in the back, he was in last place. Nope, nope. They're all focused on a priority. Wherever they're headed, they've got one thing that's bearing the way. Jesus' whole point leading up to his conversation on worry is to remind us that what we prioritize will dictate the peace with which we live and move in the world. What we prioritize will dictate the peace. And so the question he wants us to ask is, do we prioritize the things of God that will last, or do we prioritize the things of the world that will pass away? And if we prioritize the things of the world that pass away, then we will always be people who are anxious and worried about their passing. We will never have true peace because we'll always be worried about what might take away our worldly things, our security. Think about it. If you prioritize your youthfulness or your good looks, how can you not become worried and anxious about aging? It's the only option if that is what you're prioritizing. If you prioritize your bank account, how can you not become worried and anxious about the economy? If you prioritize the approval of others, how can you not become worried and anxious about earning that approval in every part of your life? The worry in our lives is not connected to security, it's connected to what we prioritize. And you can always trace your worry back to what you value. It can always happen. If you want to know what you most prioritize in the world, examine what you worry most about. Examine what you're most anxious about. Our worry always reveals our priority. And I think it's important too. Jesus isn't saying that it's wrong to love your family or your work or your food or your drink or your clothing. It's not bad. Those are good and beautiful things that God has given us. They're meant to be enjoyed and stewarded well. But he's saying that if we make those things the priority, if we make those things the wrong master, if we're driven by the wrong eye, if we have the wrong treasure, the wrong top priority in our lives, then we will always be filled with worry and anxiety. We can never escape it. The things of the world are good as secondary things. It's when we get them out of order that we get into trouble. C.S. Lewis talked about this famously. He said, Our Heavenly Father has provided many delightful inns for us along our journey, but takes great care to see that we do not mistake any of them for home. Jesus isn't giving us a sentimental self-help medication to deal with the symptom of worry. He's giving us a diagnosis of our disease. That our perpetual prioritizing of passing things will destroy us. That that's actually the source of our worry. 
and all of us have this disease. The fact that we all worry means it's clear that all of us in our own ways have prioritized the wrong things in the wrong ways at the wrong times. But again, Jesus, being the good doctor that he is, doesn't just leave us with the diagnosis or the symptoms. He also gives us a prescription. He tells us how we ought to respond to worry. At the end of this passage, he says, strive first for the kingdom of God. Strive first for the kingdom of God. That's how you respond to your worry. Prioritize the right thing. Prioritize the kingdom of God. Make your ultimate trust and priority God's care and work in the world and in your life. Jesus is telling us every time we look at the birds and flowers, we can see the simplicity of their trust in God. And we can live with the same sort of simple trust that they do. We can experience the same sort of peace that they do. We can all be as peaceful as birds and flowers when we trust and prioritize the kingdom that can't be stolen, that can't pass away, that can't disappear. We can experience peace in the God who sustains us when all else passes. And that trust, that prioritization, Jesus claims throughout his ministry can happen to us in a few different ways. The first way that it happens to us is through this process called repentance. It's the fancy theological word. It's basically pulling a a 180. It's saying, in my life, I've prioritized the wrong things in the wrong ways, the wrong times. I've had the wrong treasure. My eyes directed me the wrong way. I've had the wrong master. So we turn to God. And we say, I've done the wrong thing. I've prioritized the wrong thing in my life. And God always forgives you and restores you to him when you do that, by the way. God is always forgiving. He's not sitting back, tapping his foot, waiting for you, and just barely letting you in. And the 767th time is finally the time that he gives up on you. It's not how it works. Every time you acknowledge your lack of prioritization, every time you repent, God will forgive. That's the act that makes us followers of Jesus Christ. We're people who say, I've prioritized the wrong things, and we turn back to God and receive God's forgiveness and allow God to shape our priorities anew. That's actually the second way that this happens. Because once we've done that once, we start to realize we've got to do it again and again and again. Because there's all sorts of things that we've wrongly prioritized. Oftentimes we don't realize them until years down the road. Like, man, I was way overvaluing this thing in my life, and I didn't realize it until I'd been a Christian for five years. Oh, I'm spending way too much time focusing on this. All of my worry and anxiety is born out of something that I need to trust God in. I need to give that thing up. And so this process is once turning to God and then turning to God again and again and again, handing God more and more of our life, trusting, seeking his kingdom in every part of our life. And the reward that we get for that, it's not just an eventual eternity with Jesus, though that is part of this. Remember, Jesus said that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's experienceable now in our midst. That it arrived in him, which means we can experience the real peace of Jesus today. That's why he says don't worry. You can seek the kingdom and experience peace in the midst of all of this. And so when we reprioritize the things of God, moving our own worldly priorities out of the way, we start to experience real peace. When you seek the kingdom by giving your time and energy away to help those more vulnerable than you, you'll find lasting peace. Because Jesus did. He promises that for us. When you seek the kingdom by advocating for the marginalized, you'll find lasting peace. Jesus did. When you seek the kingdom by devoting yourself to prayer and unity with God, you'll find lasting peace. Jesus did. And when you seek the kingdom by practicing radical generosity to your church, to your world, to your neighbors, you'll find lasting peace. Jesus did. For Jesus, the cure for worry isn't a reduction of things to worry about. It's the prioritizing of the right thing first. 
It's the seeking first of the kingdom. I want to close our time uh, with the words of Corey Tenboom, who lived uh, during the Holocaust. So she had plenty to worry about. She said this, worry about the future doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. Doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. As we do to ourselves when we worry. But what if today, here at Midtown, we chose something different? What if today we rejected the religion of acquisition that our culture gives us? What if we chose instead to seek first the kingdom? What if we became people who walked out of here and looked at the birds and the flowers and prioritized trust in the love of Christ? That we were so enveloped in that love in every moment that we became vehicles of peace, even in unpeaceful situations. Because when we do that, it transforms the world. It transformed the world that Christ and his disciples lived in, radically. It's transformed the world. When Christians have done this for centuries, it's transformed the world around them. It can definitely transform the world around us when we practice this together. So let's leave this place as people who trust and embody the right priority, the right treasure, the right master. Let's leave this place as people who seek first the kingdom. Let's pray.